I think most of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about our legacy, like what people are going to say about us someday. It's not because it's not important, but if you're like me, you're just trying to get through today, right? You don't, you don't have time to sit around and think about, okay, in 50 years, people are going to remember. It, not that it's unimportant. That's a big deal. And probably some of us do. Like some of us are really introspective. And so we, we think about those things. Most of us are just trying to pay the light bill, right? Like I got to go to work tomorrow and I got to make sure the kids can have food to eat and clothes to wear and get to all their activities. We don't, we don't sit around and ponder legacy questions uh, very often. And, and, and prob- probably the people who think about it all the time are the people who just care way too much what other people think, right? They're just kind of eat up with that sort of thing. And so they're always thinking about what other people are going to think about them. Even though we don't spend a lot of time thinking about that topic, the reality is we're all going to have one, right? We're all going to have a legacy of some sort. there's going to be a statement at the end of our life. There's going to be a story that somebody's going to relate about us. It's going to kind of encapsulate who we are. And in the day-to-day of our living, in the going to work and coming home and interacting with our family and what we do with our days, what we do with our minutes and the seconds of our lives, it's going to form that. It's going to shape that statement at the end. We have been studying the life of David And so far, the lives of David and Israel's first king, King Saul, have been intertwined because Saul is appointed as king and he looks like a great king, right? He's he's handsome and and tall and and seems courageous and like a great leader and he he just looks kingly, like everything about this guy suggested that he was going to be a great leader and even had some great moments early on, defending the nation and fighting the enemies. But quickly, Saul becomes paranoid and jealous and unstable and impulsive and reactionary. David is then appointed by God. You're going to be the next king. You're going to be the guy. And this causes the paranoia to go to a whole new level in Saul's heart. And as we've studied, he begins to chase David all over the place, trying to eliminate him from becoming the next king or perhaps a better king because Saul couldn't have that. We're coming to the end, however, of Saul's life. There are a couple of stories that are hallmark of the last days of Saul's life. So we're, we're going to trek through those. We're, we're going to walk through those. It'll be story time for just a little bit. So just relax and enjoy story time. But these are, these are key to understanding how, life, how Saul's life kind of unraveled <clears throat> at the end. In 1 Samuel chapter 26, David is aware, made aware again that Saul's <clears throat> army is pursuing him and that they're fairly close. And so David sends out a couple of scouts to go find out about where they are. And sure enough, they come back and they say, hey, they're really close. They're, they're not far away. At nighttime, David selects one of, one of his guys, one of his associates, and says, come on, let's sneak over there and let's see what's going on. And th- so th- they're able to sneak right into camp. They're, they're, they're able to go right in where all of the army and King Saul and his security detail, they're all asleep, 
The Bible tells us God was causing them to sleep deeply at that moment. And so they go, they go right into camp, right up to where Saul is. And David has this same conversation that we talked about last week. And, and, and the conversation is his friend says, let's, let's just end it right now. Just let me run my spear through him. This will be over. We'll, we'll stop running. You're supposed to be king. This must be what God wants because he's worked out all of the circumstances. We're here right now. And David once again says, that's, that's not my place. It's not my place to take someone else's life into my own hands in this way, especially someone that God established as the king. He's not a good king at all, but David felt this sense of integrity, responsibility, not to take this decision into his own hands. Here's what David says in verse 10 of 1 Samuel 26. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head, and let's go. Here's David's perspective. After all of this running and all of this unfair treatment, David's response is, God's going to take care of this somehow. I, I don't know how. I mean, this could end any number of ways, but it's not my place to step in and to take vengeance, that's God's place. And we're probably all tempted by that moment at some point in our life. Hopefully not to take somebody's life, but all of us have that sense of getting even vengeance. Or if we don't want to call it vengeance, at least justice. Like, like justice should be done, and that's the tension of this moment. This should be fair, and it's not fair. We can make it fair if we act. And David, this incredible man of courage and character, says, not my place. I've been treated wrongly. We've been treated wrong. Not my place to make this right. God's going to make this right in his timing, in his way. So we're going to wait on him. After this conversation, David takes... Saul's spear and Saul's water jug, they sneak back out of camp to a hill across from where Saul is camped, and then David engages in some smack talk from the other hill, specifically towards Saul's security guard, a guy by the name of Abner. If you read 1 Samuel 26, you'll find that David starts yelling across the, the ravine there, hey, Abner, great job on the security detail." Like, do you even know where the king's sword is? Do you know where the king's water jug is? Because I think somebody came and got it in the middle of the night, which means they stood over the king and could have taken his life. You're doing great as a security guard, Mr. Abner. By the way, in some kingdoms, the king would have you executed. Like, you would die if the king found out you were that sorry of a security guard. And and all this smack talk that's going on from David wakes up Saul. And Saul recognizes David's voice, and he puts together what's happened that, that they came in, because David's holding up the spear in the water jug at this point. And Saul gets remorseful, for lack of a better word. He, he says, David, I'm sorry, I've been wrong. I'm, I'm not going to hunt you anymore. I'm not going to try to kill you anymore. Come back home. And nobody believes this is actually true. But this is what he's saying to David. It's over. I'm not going to treat you this way anymore. But he adds a comment about himself. 
that's really interesting. This is in verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Don't believe it. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. Surely I've acted like a fool. If you have the King James Version, it says, I have played the fool. Saul, he doesn't know it, but he's days away from the end of his life. And his comment about his own life, the epitaph that he gave himself, the legacy that he spoke from his mouth was, I've played the fool. Like I've, I've wasted my life. What have I been doing? Why have I been pursuing all the wrong things? Why have I been distracted by all the wrong things? I've invested and invested, and today I realize I've played the fool. Life tempts us to play the fool. All throughout our days, no matter how old you are, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're married or single, no matter, no matter what your station in life, life is constantly trying to distract us to say, hey, this is important. Look, this is important. Give your life to this. Give your time to this. Look over here. This will bring fulfillment. How awful to spend our life chasing after things that we thought would bring us fulfillment and satisfaction only to wake up at the end of our life and have to admit, I played the fool. Life is always calling to us. Hey, buy this. Hey, have one of these. Get a bigger one of these. Get a new one of these. Have these toys. Have this bank account. And there may be nothing wrong with any of those in particular things. I just know, and you know, a lot of people who have spent their whole life accumulating and accumulating and accumulating, and at the end of their life, they look in the mirror and they say, man, I played the fool. And my priorities were mixed up my whole life. I chased stuff that I thought would bring satisfaction, and it didn't. Can you imagine any greater emptiness, any greater disappointment than coming to the end of your life surrounded by shiny toys and having to admit to yourself, if you don't admit it to anyone else, I wasted my life on stuff that doesn't matter. I've played the fool. That's one of Saul's legacy. I played the fool. And if I, if I can give Saul any credit in this moment, it's that he admits it. And if I, if I can give him any props in this moment, it's <clears throat> Saul doesn't try to blame anybody else. We sometimes spend a lot of time doing that. Like when we've wasted time or wasted energy or, or, or we've gone after something and we thought it would be fulfilling and it wasn't fulfilling, sometimes we look around and say, well, if they hadn't and if this were different and if they told me differently or if I'd had better whatever, then I wouldn't have. Saul doesn't do any of that to his credit. Saul says, it was me. I played the fool. I made the decisions in my life. Life. And sometimes you and I need that moment. Sometimes you and I need that moment. We're just honest with ourselves and we don't blame life or people or circumstances or anybody else. We just look in the mirror and say, it's me. I made these decisions. I was wrong. I played the fool. All of us are going to have bad seasons of our life. <clears throat> 
All of us are going to have bad moments. All of us are going to make some bad choices. All of us are going to get distracted, lose focus, get our priorities upside down. The question is, is that going to be a season of our life or is that going to be the story of our life? Is that going to be a season where, man, I made some bad choice. I prioritized the wrong thing. I ran after the wrong. That was a season that, that with God's help, I'm going to turn and I'm going to change, or is that going to be the story of my life? You can think about it this way. The deciding factor in the direction of our life is what we do once we recognize what we've done. What do we do once we've recognized what we've done, because all of us, to varying degrees, are going to have moments where we go, I shouldn't have. I wish I had done that differently. The question is, what do you do from that moment forward? When, when you have to admit, this area, I've been playing the fool. Where's, where's the direction of your next step? Because for Saul, it wasn't toward God. It wasn't toward integrity. It wasn't towards character. It was to continue to move away in greater disobedience from God. First Samuel chapter 28. The Philistines, which is Israel's primary enemy, the Philistines have taken an offensive position getting ready to attack the Israelites. And, and Saul's praying to God in, in 1 Samuel 28, God, am I supposed to attack? Am I supposed to wait? Should we go in? Should we stay out? Should we declare war? What should we do? And God cannot be heard by Saul. God is no longer talking to Saul. God has rejected Saul as leader and is raising up his leader in David. Saul isn't able to hear from God anymore. And so, Saul gets this really weird idea, and let me just admit, 1 Samuel 28 is one of the most bizarre chapters in all the Bible. Like, if you've read some weird stories in the Bible, and there are weird stories in the Bible, this is one of them. This is one of the most bizarre stories, events, encounters in all of the Bible, because Saul, when he's not hearing from God, decides, I'm going to go find somebody who can speak to the dead for me. I'm going to go find a medium, a sorcerer. A witch, some of your translations call her the witch of Endor. I'm telling you, this is weird. This is crazy stuff in the Bible. Saul decides, I'm going to go find a witch, and I'm going to try to contact Samuel. Remember the priest who's dead now? I'm going to try to contact Samuel and see if he will give me some instructions. So Saul didn't want the witch to know that it was the king that was coming to see him, so he puts on a disguise, goes to see the sorcerer, the medium, the witch in disguise and says, can you help me talk to Samuel, who's dead? And the medium says, sure. And so she does her thing, chicken bone or whatever. I don't know what she did, but she did whatever her thing is. And Samuel shows up. The funny part of this story to me is she freaks out when Samuel shows up. Like, this doesn't normally happen when I do this thing. <laughs> like if you're old enough to remember the Whoopi Goldberg ghost thing, it was that sort of thing. It was like, uh, I've got one. Like, I really got one. And then, then she's also frightened because she realizes it's the king that she's talking to. Samuel shows up, and, and he begins to tell Saul, look, 
God has rejected you and your leadership and your character and who you are. You're done. God's got a new leader who's going to take your throne. There is nothing you can do about it. And then he ends with these words in verse 19. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Now, I have never seen a ghost in my life. Just be honest with you. Never seen a ghost. I don't know anybody that's seen a ghost and can kind of give me some proof of that. All right. Somebody's going to come tell me afterwards you've seen a ghost. Great. I've never seen a ghost. I don't know people who've seen ghosts. I don't want to see a ghost. I mean, I don't believe in ghosts, just to be honest. I, I really don't. But if you ever see a ghost, free advice, if you ever see a ghost and the message from the ghost is, tomorrow you will be with me, that's not a good sign. <laughs> like, that's not the ghost message you want to get. Tomorrow, you're going to be a ghost too, big boy. Like, you're coming to this side tomorrow. That's not a good message. And that's the message that Samuel Samuel's spirit, whatever, Samuel gets to Saul. Tomorrow it's over, big boy. You're done. And that's what happens in chapter 31. This is verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting, crew, the fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. Saul was afraid they were going to make sport of him. They were going to torture him before they killed him. So he said to his armor bearer, his servant, just kill me. Just get it over with because it's about to happen anyway. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. If you keep reading, we're told that the Philistines came through where all the bodies were collecting weapons and anything of value as, as armies would do. And they discovered the king. This is the king. We, we killed the king. and they, You can read the details for yourself. They desecrated his body and ended up taking his body and the body of his sons and impaling them on the city wall as a sign of victory over their enemy. And as a way to despise Israel's God. Look what we did to your God and your people. A group of men from Jabesh-Gilead. This, this was a small city. It was the first city that Saul ever defended successfully against the Philistines. Right after he becomes king. He defends this little city. And the inhabitants of that city had remained very loyal to Saul because of his protection of them. So that night... Uh, a group of men from that city travel all night and remove the bodies and, and give them as much of an honorable burial as they could possibly be given at that time. When 2 Samuel opens, 
It begins with David learning the news of what's happened to Saul and Jonathan and the sons and all of the, the army. And David's heartbroken. The second half of the first chapter, he writes a eulogy or a lament or a, a poem of sorrow, specifically for Saul and Jonathan, but over everything that had taken place. And there's a phrase that he repeats at least three times, beginning and end. He comes back to this phrase. It's a phrase you've heard before. A lot of people don't know it comes from the Bible. It's just this phrase, how the mighty have fallen. And he says it multiple times, how the mighty have fallen. We use that phrase. We talk about CEOs that get found out for taking money and they had all this power and wealth, and then they go to prison. How the mighty have fallen. Or politicians or pastors or religious leaders who get exposed for something. We say that about them, how the mighty have fallen. This is where it comes from. David looks at the life of Saul, someone who started with every advantage. He was prototypical, like you're, you're king material. Israel wanted a king. He, he, he was what they wanted. So there was un, unparalleled support in the beginning. Like his approval ratings were through the roof. Yes, you're our king. We wanted a king. And how slowly his choices, his moving away from God had eroded everything about his leadership, about his spiritual life. And then it ends this way. Those are, those are two fairly damaging legacies. How the mighty have fallen. I have played the fool. And nobody wants that on their tombstone, right? I've played the fool. How the mighty have fallen. But that, that's where Saul's life ends. For Saul, like all of us, his position and his title and his power could not hide what was going on on the inside of him forever. I mean, it could cover it up for a little while. If you, if you have position and power and title, you can hide things for a little while. You just can't do it forever. And eventually, that gets exposed no matter who you are, no matter what your title or how much power, or how much money you have. Eventually, the inside gets exposed. That's, that's the, the thing about power. Power doesn't fortify the cracks in our, in our souls. It exacerbates the cracks. It exposes the cracks of our soul. And yeah, we can hide it for a little while. Maybe we're, we're just a really charismatic personality. Maybe people just like us. Maybe we're a good talker. Maybe we're a good interviewer. Maybe we're just really determined. Maybe it's not power, but we're just really determined. So we push through and, and doors open and Good things happen, but we don't take care of the inside. Like we don't address what's going on spiritually in us. We don't address character and integrity and trust and honesty. And we kid ourselves if we think that's not going to get exposed, because it always does at some point. That always comes out. And here's Saul at the end of his life, and it all comes out. It's the danger of power, really. It's the danger of success because with it comes a sense of entitlement or a sense of, well, I don't have to worry about that anymore. 
I have people to handle that. Well, nobody's going to know about that. I'm not sure who first said it. A lot of people take credit for it now, so I'll take credit for it. I said this. Not really. I think maybe Andy Stanley said it, but everybody steals his stuff, so I'm going to steal it today. It's, it's, it's the thought that your talent, your giftedness, your skill can take you farther than your character can sustain you if you're not careful. Like your abilities, if you're not doing the hard work on the inside, like if you're, if you're not clean before God, if you're not honest before God, if you're not dealing with the inside stuff, if you're not peering honestly into the mirror of your character and your integrity and your walk with God, yeah, you can get to places that you're not ready to handle. And those places can crush you, and at a minimum, they can expose you. That's where Saul was. And maybe the most tragic aspect is, it wasn't just Saul who paid for this. It wasn't just Saul who ended up dead on a hillside. Remember what we read? Many fell on Mount Gilboa. Many fell. At one point it says all of his men fell. His sons fell. Remember? Let me read it again. And they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. Listen, there is always collateral damage to our disobedience. Always. There's always a ripple effect when my soul's not right, when my heart's not right, when my character and integrity are not right. And sometimes it's not a ripple effect, is it? Sometimes it's a tsunami effect. Sometimes innocent people get swept up and swept over because I'm not tending to the deep places of my heart. I'm not being honest about those areas. We talk sometimes about victimless crimes, so socially, politically, I'm talking about, and I'm not interested in getting a social political debate, but we use that phrase sometimes. Well, that's a victimless crime. Can I just be honest with you? There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a victimless crime. Because there's always people close by that are getting harmed. It's the same thing with sin, it's the same thing with disobedience. There's no such thing as a victimless sin in my life. There are people that pay for that. My wife, my family, my kids, the people that I'm close to, they feel the effects of my disobedience. That's the way it was with Saul. There was this tsunami effect of people around him. On any given Sunday, in any church, including this one, I'm convinced, there is somebody who is about to take a step over the line. There is somebody, and you've convinced yourself, nobody else is going to get hurt, nobody else is ever going to find out about this, nobody's going to know what I'm doing, who I'm talking to, the step I'm about to make, the money I'm about to take, the relationship I'm about to start, nobody's ever going to know. And maybe you're here today so that this story would be a warning in your life. Step back. Step back. I know this is an over-the-top story, graphic. I'm not saying anybody's going to die in your story. 
I'm not saying that the events are going to spill out like this. I'm saying that God gives us stories like this because somebody this morning needs to hear, you're about to really mess up a lot of lives. You're about to step in the wrong direction, and you're not the only person that's going to have to pay for that. Step back. I always feel a great tension at the end of 1 Samuel, specifically related to Jonathan. Um, I, I, I get Saul's demise. It makes sense. It makes perfect sense to me why Saul would experience what he experienced. He deserved it, we, we would say. Right? It, was, it was justice for Saul because he made so many mistakes. I get it. What about all those other people? And specifically, what about Jonathan, his son? We didn't spend a lot of time talking about Jonathan in this series, but when you read the story and you encounter Jonathan, what you find is somebody whose heart was right. You find somebody who always seemed to, to move in the right direction, always re- make the right decision, always have the right attitude. Here's a guy that's caught in between being best friends with the future King David and being the son of the current King Saul. I mean, that's that's a difficult place to live. And all throughout his life, you find Jonathan encouraging David for what God had called him to, even though Jonathan rightfully was supposed to be the next king after his dad. But you find him encouraging his friend because he knew God was on his friend. God had appointed his friend and anointed his friend. And at the same time, tried to be loyal as a son to his father, even though he knew his father was making all kinds of mistakes. And so Jonathan's called in this area. And it's this incredible integrity of Jonathan's heart. And then for him to, for his story to end this way. I always walk away from this story and, and I think, Jonathan deserved better than this. Like, this isn't fair. Like, Jonathan deserved for things to work out, not to die next to his dad. I find myself saying that about a lot of circumstances, though, and a lot of people. I mean, there, there, there are circumstances I look at and people's lives that I look at, and I want to say that. I want to say it. it It should have ended better for them. It should have come out better for them. When I was in college, uh, toward the end of my time in college, I lived with a young couple, uh, Steve and Melanie Caswell. They had uh, one daughter. They ended up having four daughters. Um, Just a wonderful, beautiful family. And Steve probably the most passionate follower of Jesus I've ever met. Just unbelievable heart and passion for the things of God and seeing people, especially teenagers, come to know Jesus, just love the Lord, love God's Word, most generous person you could ever met. If he found out you had a need and there was any way he could meet it, he would meet your need. And at 46... Steve died of lung cancer, non-smoker, athlete, took care of his body, beautiful wife, beautiful kids. And we sat in the church that day for Steve's funeral, and everybody in the room thought, this should have ended differently for Steve. 
Steve, Steve is the greatest guy we've ever known. How does it end at 46 for Steve? I've mentioned my dad before. Um, great pastor, great guy. Church that loved him. They were relocating their campus, building a new campus down the road. They're about halfway, two-thirds of the way through with the brand-new campus. They were going to move in. He was going to be the pastor. Incredible days were ahead. They were going to grow. It was going to be phenomenal. And, and my dad dies at 55 of pancreatic cancer. Like for years after that, I'm talking to God. I'm thinking, God, well, it should have ended differently for my dad. Here's the reality of Jonathan's story, though, and the reality of Steve's story and my dad's story and a lot of stories. The reality is we don't get to choose how we die. I mean, outside of the, the most tragic of all deaths, we don't get to choose how we die. Because we'd all choose the same thing, right? Like we all have a number in mind. You don't have to tell me your number, but we've all got a number. 80, 85, 90, 101. I don't, we've all got a number. And we all think, here's, what, here's the way I wanted to go down. I, I want to kiss my family goodnight, hug everybody, tell them I love them, slip under the covers and just go to sleep and not wake up. Like that's what we'd all pick, right? Like that's, what, that's how it would be. We'd all pick. You don't, you don't get to pick. None of us get to choose how we die. None of us get to choose when we die. None of us get to go to the calendar and go here. And, and most of us would say, I'm glad. I don't, I don't want that. We don't get to choose how we die. But every one of us get to choose how we live. We don't get to choose when the last day comes, but we get to choose how we spend this day. Every second of this day, we get to choose. And if we get to wake up tomorrow, then every second of tomorrow, we get to choose. None of us get to choose how we die, but every one of us get to choose how we live. The direction of our heart and where we are in relationship to God and the degree to which we're obeying, the degree to which we're pursuing things that matter for eternity, every one of us get to choose that every day. For Samuel ends, and it's a mess. A mess. His body's strewn everywhere. The king's dead. The king's sons are dead. The enemy has won. God's been defeated. But in the midst of the mess of the end of 1 Samuel, God's bringing another king. God's bringing another king that's going to write a different story. God's bringing another king with a different heart. He's going to step into brokenness and darkness and mess and death. And he's going to bring new life to a nation. David is like many characters in the Old Testament. He's a foreshadowing of Jesus coming in the New Testament. Remember where David's from? David's from Bethlehem. Samuel went to Bethlehem to find David. Jesus, the king, is going to come from Bethlehem. Remember how nobody in David's family thought he would be the king, like he wasn't even invited to the party of figuring out the next king? Nobody who knew Jesus thought he was the king. You remember they all said, the Nazarene, like that guy? He's going to be the one? Jesus is rejected as David is rejected. 
And yet he was the king who had come to change the story, to step into brokenness and death and darkness and mess and write a whole new story by a whole new king. He came to live and die and rise again for all of the brokenness, not just of the end of 1 Samuel, but the brokenness of your life and my life and this world and sin. He came to be the forever eternal king. And I hope, I pray, that you are living your life surrendered to that king. Because ultimately, that's the only way the brokenness gets put back together in our lives. That's the only way sin is forgiven and hope is restored and life is given back to us. The only way is when we surrender to King Jesus. We admit, well, we've made a mess of some things. We played the fool, but we want to bring that to you and we want to be set free. We want to be forgiven so that Jesus can reign in our hearts. And if you have not done that, boy, do it today. Let a new king come on the throne of your life. Let a new rule take over in your life and surrender to him, submit to him. Let him start a new chapter. Let's pray. God, the Old Testament is full of these big dramatic, graphic stories. One is a caution to us because we can all be like salt. We can play the fool. We can chase things that don't matter. We can lose our focus, forget about the right priorities. We can run from you and disobey you and not listen to you. That can be us. But thank you for the reminder that whatever the mess is at the end of 1 Samuel, there's a new king that came to reign in 2 Samuel. And not just a, a fallen, faulty king. But Jesus came. He came to remove our brokenness and darkness and hurt and sin. And to redeem us to a new life forever and ever and ever. Help us to live for that. Help us to submit to that. Help us to surrender to that king. I pray it in Jesus' name.